Hello, thank you for joining us. My name is Onofrio Castilla, reporter for Spark Spread. I'm being joined by Ben Baker from Greenbacker Capital. Ben, thanks for being on the show today. Thanks a lot for having me. Great. I, I want to start off just by acknowledging that Greenbacker has been very active lately. You know, For those who are paying attention, it seems like every week there's multiple announcements, equity investments in companies, as well as acquisition of assets across a range of classes. Can we start the conversation with a little bit about you and the fund from which you're investing? Sure. So myself, I joined Greenbacker about two years ago to launch a private equity slash growth equity investing strategy uh, for the firm. Historically, you know, over the past 11 years or so in, in the firm's existence, the firm's been investing out of a, uh, an open-ended sustainable infrastructure fund. So when you're seeing press releases you know, regarding acquiring a solar farm or, or repowering a wind farm, that's coming out of the infrastructure fund, uh, which is a separate vehicle and the, the much larger one of the two. So we, we sort of call it the flagship fund. It's about uh, $1.6 billion or so right now. You know, I got here in a pretty roundabout way, as I think a lot of folks uh, in the industry have over the past um, 10, 15 years. You know, I've been in, in the power or infrastructure space in, in one way, shape, or form for about the past 15 years, starting, you know, when it was mainly gas and coal plants, and uh, then over time, you know, evolving towards, towards renewables, you know, solar and otherwise. I have, you know, been a bit on the investing side, you know, firms like GE uh, in their energy investing business, and have also been on the, uh, on the development side and, and been on the front lines. So I, I kind of bring both of those experiences or, or both of those mentalities to bear in our work here. Great. You know, recently Greenbacker has made some some equity investments. Uh, I'm thinking about Noria Energy in solar. I'm thinking about DeLorean Power in storage. Moving forward, uh, particularly as it relates to equity investments in growth companies, what what is Greenbacker's strategy? What should we expect? Sure. Yeah. You know, I, I think our strategy, you know, it's rapidly evolving, you know, just as the market is, right? I mean, we when it comes to asset classes and and the types of technologies we touch, you know, first of all, we we our mandate is written, you know, pretty broadly. And so you you've seen that we've invested in solar companies, we've invested in hydro companies, battery storage companies, we're we're looking at waste to value and and EV charging. So we're looking, you know, across a pretty wide range of of what could be called sustainable infrastructure. You know, I think uh, the the risks in the in the industry are changing so quickly that I think we face different risks today than we were writing about when we first were you know writing the PPM on on the fund you know back then we were thinking a lot about development risks and about about revenue models and and about market share but I think what we've seen over the past kind of year and a half on the supply chain side the the cost side the labor side the interconnection queue side. Um, you know, I think these are new risks or at least risks that have become exacerbated, you know, even since we started the fund. So I think that'll continue to drive, you know, the themes into which we invest. When it comes to the kinds of businesses we invest in, you know, that, that won't change, right? We, we partner with, with really experienced and really uh, exciting management teams. We look for teams that have sort of a differentiated approach to what they're doing and have really Kind of gained traction in some niche, you know, whether that's geographic, technological, the kind of client that they're approaching in a given technology, you know, and so that's what you'll see. You know, you look at Noria; these guys are, you know, one of the foremost experts in the U.S. on floating solar. That's pretty niche today, but we, we take the view that that'll grow significantly, you know. And then DeLorean, you know, one of our most recent investments too, 
the way that they're approaching the battery storage space is very differentiated insofar as their their work with with municipal and cooperative utilities and and the way in which they set up their revenue structures. I want to put a pin in risk and come back to that. But first, for the sake of continuity, I, I want to talk about something that we'd spoken about earlier, and that's combining or bridging growth capital and infrastructure capital. Can you describe that concept to the listeners and what you meant by that? Yes. Yeah, it's a funny thing, you know. I think we've we've been discovering ourselves, and you know, part of that we go out to the market with a product, and over the last year and a half, the market has really shown us what is most missing. You know, what's what companies are are looking for, what can what can serve them the best, and what we've come what we've come to see is that there's a number of you know either young companies or companies that are hitting an inflection point in their growth. And, you know, these companies are obviously involved in sustainable infrastructure. And they kind of need two two forms of of advice and, and capital. You know, on the one hand, there's there's the growth equity, right? We are, you know, oftentimes investing into businesses that are a couple years old, you know, from the two guys in a truck thing to to a business that maybe has eight people or, or 12 people. But is on the cusp of, of real exponential growth, you know, in their pipeline and, and their staff. So on the one hand, you know, we're coming in and you know helping set up everything from IT policies, you know, and cash management policies to ESG policies to you know incentive plans and, and, and bonus plans for for key employees and, and really getting um, the company at the top, you know, set up for success and, and really ready to grow and scale. But at the same time. The what the company is also looking for is both you know infrastructure capital as well as you know the technical know-how when it comes to developing, owning, operating uh, projects. And I think what we found is that oftentimes it's really hard to find both of those kind of tailored forms of capital and advice in one place. And that if you look for if you look for one of them, you're going to get shortchanged on the other. And so we try to kind of separate out the approach, but but kind of put our growth equity hats on, you know, in GDEV, but then work with companies to help them arrange the infrastructure capital that they need separately from that, whether that's from our affiliated uh, fund or, or whether that's from a different market participant. You guys closed out a new fund very recently. It was oversubscribed and you announced a new slate of LPs uh, along with that. Did you have to describe this concept to them? What kind of concerns did they bring when they heard you pitch this concept to them or explain your, your strategy? Yeah, I mean, thinking back, you know, I think there's a number of of concerns or at least considerations, right? As as a growth stage company is kind of on the precipice of developing and perhaps building and owning a, a large portfolio of assets and and you know, oftentimes we are there for the first financing that that a company closes, the first COD, you know, on an asset that that they've built and and flip on. And so, for sure, being there for all these firsts you know, poses a risk, which we think we 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 look for, you know, a commensurate return on that risk. But but it's really about the the DNA of this organization and why if someone's going to take that risk, why it should be us, right? Because having, you know, built up the the infrastructure fund, you know, over the past decade, you know, we've also, you know, created a portfolio of multiple gigawatts of of solar and wind and battery storage facilities across hundreds of facilities. We we have at least 40 folks, I think, who sit in Vermont and, and, and elsewhere who are focused on diligence, procurement, engineering, construction management, operations, and, and data management, and all that stuff. So, you know, 
we are in, in a great position to leverage the other pieces of the firm to, to kind of bring all that to bear from both a capital and expertise perspective, you know, to the companies that we are, you know, funding as a growth equity investor. To touch on your place in, in the investment chain, uh, do you see yourself as, as just being a step like above a VC? As in, like, is this strategy just, just one rung on a company's climb to an eventual large exit or IPO? Let's, to respond to that, I guess, you know, there's a lot of similarities, you know, to, to some chain in, in like the VC funding parlance, you know, into like series A's and B's and C's. Uh, I think what we've seen, you know, that's very different and where I think VCs take a, a different approach is the sort of like portfolio theory or the statistics, you know, around you know, seed or, or, or early stage investing and how many investments will move forward, how many won't, how many will be home runs, you know, how many will be zeros. And, and you can take different risks, I think, when you're, when you're constructing a portfolio in that way. So I think one major difference is that we have kind of zero tolerance for zeros here. Like we, we are not investing in a large basket of companies on the premise that, that not all will, will succeed. You know, we're investing only in companies that we do expect um, to succeed, you know, and, and, and we work that hard with our companies because, because that's how, you know, that's our mentality. And I think the other thing too is, I think there's a really important place for, for venture capital in, in the industry, especially as pertains to, to technology risk and, and software and kind of opening up new markets and, and, and new tech, you know, or even into the, the manufacturing side of, of what it is that we do. I think for us, you know, we take development risk, uh, and we take the risk of of building up companies and 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 hiring good people and getting in into interconnection queues, and you know, we take risk around the future value of assets, which could be affected by you know interest rates, commodity prices, other input prices, labor, and all that stuff. But you know, we are we don't take technology risk, and we're not investing in underlying asset classes that. That really seem to be exotic. We we invest in stuff that when it finally reaches NTP um, should be pretty boring, you know. So I think that's a pretty big difference. Now, having said that, we are definitely here, you know, as bridge capital, you know, and 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 what we think that bridge is is you know we want to you know partner with a company when they have sort of proven the first stage of their success, proven that there's you know a market that that is um that is profitable, and proven that. They have a you know a strong position within that market, but you know what we're trying to do is bridge these companies to being at institutional scale, you know, to being the targets of of the M and A processes that that you read about, you know, over the course of working with them for a few years. What are some of the transactions you've taken note of recently that instruct how you might exit in the future? Staying on the topic of equity investments in in companies. Sure. So you know, without using without using names, I think. We could talk about the types of transactions that we've seen and, and the way we've seen, you know, the market look at, at developers and development. You know, we've certainly seen the market reapproach the development phase, you know, and the more risky phase of assets, right? And, and I think part of that's been the, the clamoring for, for the underlying assets themselves, you know, and, and the competition for those assets has, has forced people to look, you know, farther and farther earlier into the development cycle. And, and the logical extreme of that is obviously to invest in the company that is coming up with these, these projects uh, in the first place. So through 2021, we saw a, a pretty uh, aggressive 
uh, wave of M&A, you know, especially on the, the much larger side. And what we've seen since then is that as all of the biggest companies, Cypress Creek, Pivot, Dimension, as those companies have been have been backed, you know, the M&A market has moved down, you know, farther and farther down into the middle market, I would say. And so all the while we've seen, you know, the, the, the risks that I talked about in the beginning, the, the rising prices, inflation, conflict in Ukraine, interest rates, interconnection queues, all, all these risks are, are, I think, you know, considerations for acquirers. But I think the market in general, and recently, the, you know, discussion of more tariffs, you know, if you can believe it. And, and so I think all of these risks are taken into consideration. But I think a really interesting point, you know, that most folks would tend to agree with is that these, these headwinds are pretty near term. You know, the, the market sees very strong fundamentals and, and kind of a secular direction over the medium and long term. So I think investors who are, you know, starting to partner with earlier stage companies, earlier stage pipelines, you know, are going to see those projects come to fruition as a lot of the supply chain and other, you know, issues are, are starting to ease. So I think while you see a moderation in, you know, how aggressive folks are going to be in these processes, um, it doesn't change how excited the market is for the opportunity to invest into a really good development company that that has a proven track record of originating assets year after year and and you know getting them permitted and bringing them to NTP. And so, you know, very long way of saying I, I think that what we've seen in 2021 and into 2022 will continue in a in a more responsible way um, over the next few years as well. You know, kind of in the period you know during which we are bringing a lot of our companies to market. And and I think you know we're already having certain companies get approached unsolicited. So I think that's that's starting to illustrate how the M and A market, as it as it goes from big to small, is starting to get you know farther down into the um the, the scale of of transaction that that we work with. Everything that we've been talking about so far, this kind of overarching investment theory and and practice, does it differ across asset classes? Uh, you know, we've se- we've seen you buy solar and hydroelectric, as you mentioned at the beginning of the discussion. You're increasingly in batteries and looking at EV deals. How does your approach change between them, or does it at all? Yeah, it's funny. You know, we we try obviously to 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 create s- structures that that we can rinse repeat with. You know, and that's both when we do corporate investments as well as you know when we put together um, an asset level you know investment fund with with an infrastructure investor. So we try to make these pretty adaptable. You know, across asset classes, and so. We've we've done one in solar, you know. We we we've looked at it in hydro. We're we're working on it in, in battery storage. We're working on it, uh, looking at it in EVs. And fundamentally speaking, this can be adapted across asset classes. I think as you get into the details, the less you know about the asset class, or at least the more uncertainty that there could be over the next few years in in outcomes, the the more bells and whistles you might need. To manage some of that uncertainty, but fundamentally, um, the structures don't have to change across asset classes. You know, when it comes to solar, this is certainly relevant to EVs and batteries. I, I spoke to an investor today who called it like 
the seven icebergs. He had like seven different things that you know are, are disrupting the the industry: supply chain issues, inflation, rate hikes. One big one is the U.S. Department of Commerce investigation in Southeast Asia that could put retroactive tariffs on projects dating back to November. How are all these impacting your investment approach? You know, everything that's just going on lately. Yeah, you know, I think thematically we've we've been cognizant of a lot of these these risks or at least the the broad categories of the risks and and our investments tend to to reflect that, right? So if you look at um a partnership that we created with Commonwealth Energy Partners almost a year ago, you know, last summer, th- this developer is totally focused on the Virginia market right now. And that and that means, you know, some some smaller projects, you know, under 25 megawatts and plenty of bigger stuff that has to go through the PJM process. So at that time, you know, we could already sense, you know, plenty of backlog in the PJM and and in in the interconnection queues, you know, in Virginia. But, you know, we we think about the the horizon of that backlog and we think about the horizon of our investments and 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 where the company is in originating those opportunities. Um, and when you start to even with PJM's interconnection reform, you know, we we have attractive projects that are going to be you know, getting studied, you know, kind of in the middle of this decade, which is generally in line with when we'd expect to have been moving those projects forward. So when we think about project, you know, underlying asset classes that are exposed to, you know, say the interconnection queues, we we line up the years and the, and the timing and, and think about if it makes sense, which, which in this case it did, notwithstanding the near, the nearer term headwinds, right? Which are not really, you know, affecting us too badly as we, as we go around creating an, an early stage pipeline of, of over a gigawatt. So, so that company is doing great because the timing lines up well. And then if you look at some of our more recent investments or, or some of the investments we're looking at today, you know, we certainly have a big focus on, on behind the meter. You know, Noria was an example of that. You know, even if some of their projects are 20 megawatts, they're 20 megawatt projects behind the meter uh, with an industrial company. And, you know, our thought, our thought with that is, well, okay, if if we are going to be exposed to all sorts of icebergs, like you said, including the costs of of inputs and, and labor and whatnot, if we can eliminate one of those key risks, you know, i.e. the the interconnection queues, well, then that's great. You know, so that's how we were thinking about it there. And and going forward, I think, you know, we we are putting together a broad or a kind of diversified portfolio of different technologies, like I said. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think that diversification, you know, hydro is not is not exposed to the same risks. Solar is batteries are exposed to similar risks, but not not all the same and not with the same players and, and not in the same way. And so while there's plenty of correlation within the portfolio, you know, if, if we're investing across multiple technologies, you know, I think that that creates a decent kind of portfolio construction for us. To keep on this topic, I wonder how it's impacting your existing portfolio companies. I mean, earlier I mentioned Noria and DeLorean. There's OIA Solar. These equity investments that you've made, what have you experienced with them lately regarding these risks, all these macroeconomic events? And what are you looking for in in future investments? How is that informing your investment theory with with, uh, equity investments that have yet to be made? Yeah. I mean, taking it one step at a time. You know, think, thinking about a company that would be, you know, dealing with some of the near-term, you know, impacts of these risks. Um, you know, take Oya, like you mentioned, Oya Solar. They are, you know, advancing a hun- hundreds of megawatts of 
of pipeline, both in New York and then and then in other key markets throughout the U.S. And what's interesting is that for all the risks, all the headwinds, there, there's kind of equally offsetting opportunities, right? You know, as w- one example, so for sure, input costs are going up, and and for that, I think the company will. In, you know, this year, they'll build their most economically efficient projects, but maybe defer some projects to 2023 or 2024 um, to pick up some of that value back as module prices and, and other prices start to moderate. But at the same time, other companies that have that have had to do the same thing that are that are less well capitalized, they are starting to to capitulate, you know, pretty, pretty frequently on assets, right? If you had, you know, a few hundred K in an asset in a solar farm that you expected to either sell in 2022 or or finance in 2022 and, and recoup your spend, you know, from a bank, and now you can't do that because you're deferring the project. You're, you might have a working capital or a liquidity crunch, and so when you look at a bigger developer like Oya, you know, we've arranged 35 million dollars of capital for them. It actually creates a decent opportunity to to gain market share, right? And then at the same time. You have the governor of New York over the last few months expanding the DG goal in New York from six gigawatts to 10 gigawatts. So it's the same theme of, you know, near term headwinds sort of contradicted by increasingly aggressive goals and a pretty bright outlook over the the medium and long term. So I think for them, it's created, you know, certain opportunities, right? And then at the same time, the Ohio community solar market, you know, started to open up and and they entered that market. So they've been able to, to take some of the time that they might have otherwise spent negotiating EPC contracts this year and put that towards expanding the pipeline that they'll be building in 23, 24, 25. And you know, given the kind of the the nature of the investments that we make and the the horizons over which we invest, like to, to me, that's a positive. You know, I, I feel like I could just ask you questions all day, but you know, we're running out of time here. So being cognizant of your time, I guess I'd just open up the floor to you. Like what what else would you care to point out here? What should I be asking you? <laughs> no, I mean most most folks ask the what keeps you up at night question. What keeps you up at night, Ben? <laughs> After going through the interconnection queues, labor costs, prevailing wage, cost of steel, modules, tariffs, Ukraine, I feel like we don't really necessarily have to add any more boogeymen into that into that story? Yeah, that's enough. But you know, you know, I think what's what doesn't keep me up, but what's interesting is that a lot of the conversation has shifted back, you know, towards towards like the the you know all of the above approach and kind of the 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 need for you know certain fossil fuels faster and sooner. And in general, I think that will be a constructive. Like recasting of the conversation, because I think the worst thing that can happen is to exclude some of those companies from this conversation when they're, you know, especially the majors, right? But even even some of the smaller companies are really well capitalized and and should really play a big role in the energy transition, which is kind of like the the fun part of seeing Houston reinvigorate itself as an energy transition capital is is emblematic of the fact that you know. You know, oil and gas companies need to be part of this conversation. And by kind of going back to an all of the above approach, to some extent, at least we'll create a bit more cooperation, I think, or at least, or, or has the chance to. So, you know, I, I find that interesting, at least. Ben, thank you so much for joining us today. 
Thanks for having me. Thank you all for listening to the podcast. My name is Anofrio Castillo, reporter for Spark Spread. I've been speaking with Ben Baker at Greenbacker Capital. This has been a production of Spark Spread, part of Infralogic. Please subscribe and feel free to follow us on social media. 